It's Tuesday, September 18th, and this is The Daily Dive. The process of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation has been thrown into turmoil following accusations of sexual assault decades ago. What once seemed like a slam dunk and another win for President Trump may now possibly be delayed. Both Kavanaugh and his accuser, Christine Ford, have said they would testify before the Senate committee. Elena Treen, political reporter with Axios, joins us for what is next and why it is all about timing. Next, as communities continue to deal with the aftermath of Florence, recovery efforts and flooding are what we need to keep an eye on. But today we speak to one of those people that fly straight into the eye of the hurricane to monitor wind speeds and track the trajectory of storms. Dr. Heather Holbach, a hurricane hunter working with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, joins us for what it's like to fly through a hurricane. Finally, many are hyping up 5G to be the next big technological advancement that will increase internet speeds and allow us to transmit larger amounts of data. Automakers are also looking toward 5G to pave the way for driverless cars. Chester Dawson, senior reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about how 5G will change your driving experience and when it might happen. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Most importantly, I want the American people to be happy because they're getting somebody that is great. I want him to go in at the absolute highest level. And I think to do that, you have to go through this. If it takes a little delay, it'll take a little delay. Joining us now is Elena Treen, political reporter with Axios. The nomination process for Brett Kavanaugh has been thrown into turmoil all over the place. Everybody's being very careful about how they're handling this. Kellyanne Conway was uh, doing some interviews saying that the woman at the center of this, Christine Ford, needs to be heard. The president, they asked him before a meeting and he said, if we need to delay something, it's that's OK. Also, what else do we know about what's going on with this? It's all about timing right now. You're exactly correct to say it's all about timing. Initially, Mitch McConnell, the president, people on the Senate Judiciary Committee, who are the ones who will be voting first on whether or not Brett Kavanaugh gets confirmed, they want this to happen. Republicans want this to happen before the midterms, which are quickly coming up. And this sexual assault, these sexual assault allegations against Kavanaugh have derailed this process. What originally had looked like it'd be smooth sailing for Kavanaugh has unraveled. And we're seeing different sides debate how to handle this. So some people, especially those on the right are saying we should move ahead. Democrats have had this allegation for a while and didn't do anything with it. They had known about it. I think it's since July. And now it's only come out a couple of days before the Judiciary Committee was expected to vote. At the same time, a lot of people, like you mentioned, Kellyanne Conway, as well as the president himself, had said that they think Ms. Ford should be heard and that they want Kavanaugh to get through and get through on the highest levels and have all Americans be happy with him and so that they would be OK with a little delay. If they don't vote on Thursday and it's delayed, the Supreme Court is supposed to start again the first Monday in October. If he doesn't make it by then, he has to wait till the next term. This is the thing that Mitch McConnell is bringing up because he's someone who his main goal is to get as many conservative judges confirmed as possible. So you're right. It's not only a political thing regarding the midterms. It is something to do with the Supreme Court and their date starting on October 1st. From the president's point of view, who said that a little delay would be fine, they think that if they can get this scandal wrapped up within a week or so and still get him through by the end of September and ready by that October 1st deadline. Things will be okay, but these things are tricky. What do we know about the Democrats' role in all this? Because 
Senator Dianne Feinstein did have the letter from Ms. Ford and she was sitting on it. I think she said at the time that Ms. Ford didn't want to come forth with her name. So that's why they were holding it. But if this had the potential to be such a big deal, was she just going to sit on it the entire time and never bring it up? So Ms. Ford had said that she initially didn't want to bring this up and didn't want to keep this private, but that she felt it was her civic duty to come forward with this. And on the, from the Democrats perspective, she did reach out to her own local officials. I believe it was her governor or her senator. But then she also made its way to Senator Dianne Feinstein's desk. She's one of the ranking Democrats on the Judiciary Committee, and she's someone who actually didn't act on this for a while, given that the time this was. So Ms. Ford, the allegation of what happened, she said took ha- happened in high school with Kavanaugh, but also so the time between that and also that there wasn't a lot to prove it. But I think that what happened with Ms. Ford was that as things were really heating up and it was looking like Kavanaugh was going to barrel ahead, seemed like he was ready to get confirmed and put on the bench, she thought that this needs to come out. And that's why we're seeing it all come out now. And everybody has agreed that if they have to testify before the committee, the Senate committee, that they will do it. Brett Kavanaugh has indicated so, and Ms. Ford has also said so. So it's all about procedure now. They got to speak with them and see what's going to happen. The FBI also has to get involved and, and vet the allegations as well. So it could potentially be a long, a longer process. This brings it back to a point where uh, what President Trump said today, he was saying that he hopes it's only a, he'd be fine with a little delay as long as it wraps up quickly. But it does seem, like you said, a lot of people have to get involved. There's a lot of official procedure to take into account with this, especially given Kavanaugh. You know, once you're appointed to the Supreme Court and you make it onto the Supreme Court, you're there for life. So this could be a process that takes far longer than some people like President Trump have, I think, anticipated or making it appear in their public statements. It's the ultimate he said, she said. People on Brett Kavanaugh's team have letters of 65 women who've known him over the years that said he's a great guy. They can pressure Miss Ford on how come she didn't say anything to anybody. There's no contemporary witness that she has that she told other than her therapist notes. But they don't name Kavanaugh specifically. So it's just going to be a really tough thing to play out. Right. No, I totally agree. And I mean, this is also something that we've seen. If you take a step back and look at the entire Me Too movement, it can be really difficult allegations. These are things that are very private and you can't blame the accusers for wanting to keep this private in the past. But it does create issues now for people now to do their jobs and figure out what did happen and you know who are the ones who are being truthful versus the ones who may actually have political motives. So I think it's going to take a lot longer to really parse through what happened. And you're right, it's going to be a game of he said, she said, and that's always more complicated than I think anyone, especially on the Hill, is looking for right now. And it's just going to heat up in the next few days ahead of the first scheduled vote. So we'll see what happens. Political reporter Elena Treen with Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. To get the detailed information that we really need to understand the intensity of the hurricane, how it's moving, where it's moving, we really need to get in there with these planes and collect higher resolution information from the instruments that we have on the planes and release what we call drop sons to get the direct measurements from the storm. Joining us now is Dr. Heather Holbach. She's a hurricane hunter, a scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. You have a very exciting job. You've flown through a few different hurricanes. You actually made history not too long ago with Hurricane Lane, which was hitting Hawaii. You were part of the first all-female science crew on a Hurricane Hunter mission, and you were the lead project scientist on there. So congratulations with that. That's great. 
Thank you very much. We were very excited about that accomplishment. You did get to fly through Hurricane Lane. You flew through Hurricane Florence as well. What is it like to fly through the hurricane, through the wall and into the eye, into the center of the storm? It's a pretty incredible experience, not one that many people get to see. And so for most of my job, I'm sitting behind a computer all day. So to actually get out there and see firsthand what I'm studying is a really helpful experience. Helps me connect the numbers and equations to the actual environment of what's happening. Sometimes it can be a little turbulent, sometimes not so much. Every storm is different, but it's uh, pretty amazing when you are going through the eye wall and you're bouncing around and then you get into the eye and it's just calm and peaceful. It really gives you a different feel for Mother Nature. I can only relate this to flights that I have taken and any little bit of wind and the turbulence that happens, but you're going through high winds and a lot of rain. Are those rides really bumpy? Each storm is different. Sometimes a Category 5 storm can be pretty smooth, and sometimes a tropical storm can be really bouncy. The storms that tend to be a little bouncy are the ones that are changing their intensity. So, for instance, when I was flying in Florence a week ago, our first pass through the storm was a little bumpy, but then it kind of maintained its strength for the rest of the flight, and it wasn't as bumpy the rest of the time. So you never know until you get out there. How long are these flight missions usually? They typically last anywhere from seven to nine hours. Why is this such an important thing? I I know you guys drop sensors, but you guys are basically responsible for mapping out the wind speeds and kind of where the trajectory of the hurricane will go. So without this first-hand knowledge, we're not going to know exactly what's going to happen with the hurricanes. Yeah, so satellites have come a long ways in the past, you know, 50 or so years, but to get the detailed information that we really need to understand the intensity of the hurricane, how it's moving, where it's moving, we really need to get in there with these planes and collect higher resolution information from the instruments that we have on the planes and release what we call drop sons to get the direct in situ measurements from the storm. Without that information, the forecast isn't as accurate. And so that's why it's really important for us to be able to get in there and collect these more high resolution direct observations that we can't get from satellites. How many passes and how often are you going through a hurricane? Let's say Florence, for example, we're hearing about it for a week or two before it's going to make landfall. How many times are you guys passing through? A typical mission would be anywhere from three to four passes usually, but last Monday for our mission in Florence, we were flying a research mission and we actually went in and out of the eye wall nine times. Whoa, (laughs) that's crazy. How does one become a hurricane hunter? I mean, I just love the name, but what do you have to do to get to that point? Like we mentioned, you're the lead scientist on one of these missions. What do you have to do to get to that point? So for me, it kind of started at a young age. It was my goal. So I went to school for meteorology. I got a PhD from Florida State University. And I was fortunate in that one of the scientists from the Hurricane Research Division that I now am working at was at Florida State at the time, and he kind of got me in contact with one of the other scientists at HRD. So I started working as a student with HRD, and then after I graduated, I became a postdoc here. It was basically who I knew and getting the right connections, and that seems to be the case for a lot of people. You know, if that's the goal that you have, you, you know, get lucky and find a way to make it happen. What was your first big mission like? You know, obviously studying all this stuff you see when storms come and make landfall and the devastation that happens, you know it's a powerful thing. 
So what was your first mission like knowing you had to fly through it? My first mission was in 2013 into what was at the time Tropical Storm Ingrid, uh, became Hurricane Ingrid in the southern Gulf of Mexico. That was a really neat experience for me because it helped me understand what it was that I was studying. So I, I work with an instrument that measures the winds at the ocean surface. And so it really helped me understand how the ocean changes as a storm changes and to see how quickly it can change really helps you understand how violent and how quickly things can change when a storm is making landfall. So it really puts things into perspective for you. And after studying hurricanes for so long now, what's the most important thing people should know about hurricanes? I think the most important thing is to not focus on the peak wind speed that's being reported. It's really more of the size of the storm that has the biggest impact. So if you have a small but very intense storm, that might not, it might impact, you know, some people really badly. But if you have a large storm with not quite as big of a wind field, such as what Florence ended up being, you can get a lot of people impacted very severely. Uh, when people get too focused on what category a storm is, that can, they can let their guard down. And that can lead to a lot more deaths and uh, destruction that if people aren't preparing properly. And that's kind of what happened with Florence. It kept downgrading as it was making landfall. Now we're dealing with the after effects a lot. It's always the flooding that are the longer lasting effects usually. But people kept seeing, oh, it's being downgraded. It's being mm -hmm. downgraded. And then, you know, a lot of people stayed behind and then you need to get rescued after that. Yeah, that's always our fear is that people are so used to hearing, oh, it's just a category one. That's no big right. deal. But I mean, we saw this with Irma last year and now again with Florence that a category one, even a tropical storm, can bring a lot of destruction. How many times have you been told that you're crazy for being a hurricane hunter? <laughs> I usually get one of two responses, either you're crazy or that's awesome. So. I think it's I think it's a little bit of both, but uh, no, it's, it's great stuff. Uh, thank you for joining us. Dr. Heather Holbach, hurricane hunter with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. It is much easier to roll out 5G services in a combined entity. And the advantages that companies have in 5G are quite substantial. Joining us now is Chester Dawson, senior reporter for the Detroit Bureau of the Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about 5G technology. Uh, every modern leap in wireless tech has brought in some distinct changes there was 2G, they're allowing for good voice transmission. 3G ushered in this app revolution. 4G brought us just a drastic speed boost. And now there's this highly anticipated 5G wireless network thing that's going to be happening. And one of the main things that everybody's excited for is it possibly paving the way for better communication between driverless cars. What do we know about 5G and how it's going to impact the auto industry? Well, we're just starting to learn more. I mean, we really won't see the first 5G vehicles until the 2020, 2021 model year. And that's only probably in, in some very high-end premium vehicles. But it should start rolling out more broadly after that. And it dovetails with a big move in the industry even today to start installing modems into vehicles when they roll off the assembly line. So today in, say, GM OnStar-equipped vehicles, you'll have a 4G modem. And that's going to be pretty much standard issue for new vehicles starting early next decade. And more and more of those are going to have 5G. Now, the big difference is the faster speeds of data transmission the amount of data, and also something known as the latency, which is effectively the reliability of that data. 
The modems in cars right now are cellular connections. And I read in your article that there's different car companies backing different technologies. Some are looking for more Wi-Fi based connections for cars. Other car makers are looking at these cellular based connections. That refers in particular to this protocol for so-called talking cars, vehicles that can communicate with one another and maybe more importantly with infrastructure around them like traffic lights and that type of thing. And the idea is if you've got vehicles that can communicate among themselves or with traffic signals, you'll know even before you see a traffic light that it'll be red by the time you get there, so maybe you should slow down, or you'll know before a car ahead of you turns on its turn signal that it plans to turn right or left. It can kind of pre-inform your vehicle. So it makes a lot of sense, and it's a big improvement in vehicle safety. The issue is, are those cars going to be talking the same language? What you're referring to is this rift in the industry between those that want to move forward more rapidly on a, with a Wi-Fi-based protocol using kind of existing technology and existing equipment available today versus those automakers who are saying, no, let's just wait until 5G comes so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Because the problem is the Wi-Fi and the cellular-based communications don't talk to one another. So you have some companies saying, what's the delay? Let's move ahead with what we have. And others are saying, no, let's wait until we get something that we can all agree on. And it comes down to a question of money because it would cost a lot to build out a Wi-Fi-based network. And a lot of automakers are saying, why should we fund that when the telecom industry is going to be building cell towers for 5G. Yeah, let's piggyback off of that. And the whole thing is with 5G is about connecting things with other things. I just saw this video the other day online about what causes traffic and traffic jams and it's people really, you know, uh, somebody will make a weird turn and then the next person behind them stop or slows down significantly. The person behind them stops and then that causes the slowing in the traffic. And part of what's so exciting about these possible connections between cars and the driverless cars could be, as you were saying, timing it out with the stoplights, timing it out with other cars so that traffic could flow more smoothly. And that's one of the things that automakers are really looking forward to. But as you said, we're still a long way off from this. The next leg of that is the move towards autonomy. So obviously, if cars can talk to one another and they can drive one another, then you you get a situation where you can radically improve traffic flow and safety. Now, we're not quite at the self-driving car yet, but this 5G technology is going to accelerate that drive as well because it's going to help vehicles understand their environment, where pedestrians are and where other vehicles are on the road. It's not true that you have to have 5G before you have self-driving technology. That's something that's often conflated in the discussion over 5G, but it will certainly help. It will make those cars much smarter, much more well-connected, and it will certainly aid in the rollout of the truly self-driving car. As always, it's always about the dollar. I noticed in your article also that with the arrival of 5G, there's going to be more built-in things to allow people to build new apps, new services, new in-car advertisements. So you can get all your cool music and your videos and everything much faster, but then they're also going to bombard you with advertisements. Exactly. That idea of a fatter data pipe into the car and out of the car means a new whole new opportunity for automakers to slice and dice the data and provide new services and charge for them. And at the same time, get a lot of useful data from a vehicle. For example, it could tell you well in advance of when you need an oil change, and maybe they'll send you a coupon for a local dealer interested in servicing the vehicle. So it's a highly complex area for the industry, and, and really they're just coming to grips with the opportunity set, but also some of the challenges. I mean, not everybody's going to want that, and not everyone's going to want to share 
share their data. But I think the the belief is that with more features and functionality, more people are going to sign up for this, and it provides a whole new revenue stream opportunity for the industry. Chester Dawson, senior reporter from the Detroit Bureau of the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.